Hello and welcome to Beyond Radio Podcasts. This is an episode in our series The Veteran's Story, produced in conjunction with Morecambe Football Club Community Sports and the First Light Trust. In this series, local veterans recount their experiences of serving in the armed forces and life since leaving. The views expressed here are of the individual contributor. This is The Veteran's Story. This is the Veteran Story podcast for at the Morecambe FC regular Veterans Coffee mornings and uh, I'm here with someone else who's going to tell us a little bit about, well, something that's specifically which is really interesting and, uh, and also equally interesting, his uh, career in the armed forces. Would you like to introduce yourself first of all? Hi, I'm Mark Lister. I'm a submariner by trade. Uh, I was in the Royal Navy for 40 years, uh, serving all over the world and uh, ended up uh, living in Morecambe, which is why I'm here at the Veterans Coffee morning today. Now, Mark, you're going to talk to us specifically about the HMS Morecambe Bay, because I think you're doing a talk quite soon as part of Armed Forces Weekend. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Uh, Dr. Graham Blick had a great idea of running a dining-in night uh, with the help of the Morecambe Football Club Community Outreach Programme. Because I was fairly high up in the Navy at the time, he said, "Does is there any connection with Morecambe and the Korean War, which is the theme for the evening? And I said, yes, HMS Morecambe Bay was in that uh, conflict uh, and carried out patrols in the area for uh, about four years from about 1950 to through to 1953 end of 1953 uh, so uh, I'm giving a presentation at the dinner along with Tin Alexander uh, who is uh, going to lay out why Korea happened and then I'm going to give some specifics about uh, the HMS Morecambe Bay, which was named after the town, obviously. Well, this is it. I mean, there, there may be people who, who don't or didn't realise that there was a warship that was named after Morecambe, yeah. named after Morecambe Bay. What can you tell us about the history of the ship? So, a fairly chequered history to start with. Uh, she was originally procured in 1943 and uh, was meant to be a lock class frigate which was an anti-submarine frigate. Uh, unfortunately uh, there were some disputes, things didn't happen quite as uh, as they should and actually they didn't start building until 1944 uh, and she was transferred to become a bay class frigate which was an anti-aircraft frigate. Where was uh, she built? In Sunderland, in Southwark in Sunderland and then uh, hostilities finished in 1945 before she was complete and Uh, All work was stopped on her because of resources and it was the end of uh, the war. Uh, In 1949 she was resurrected uh, and the build was finally finished off down in Cowes in the Isle of Wight uh, and she was commissioned in late 1949 and then sent out to the Far East Station and working uh, with the United Nations, the US Navy and the Royal Navy in and around the Korean Peninsula uh, during the conflict. So, I mean, how do we know sort of how big the ship was and how many how many members of the forces she would have carried? So, uh, she had a, a, a crew of 157, uh, big enough to carry uh, four anti-aircraft guns, four uh, 40 millimeter Bofor guns. Uh, so, quite a potent vessel in both the anti-air uh, and naval gunfire support issues. And also, she had racks for 50 depth charge. Uh, and some some bofers that would supply uh, depth charges uh, with a thrower. So quite a potent vessel at the time. And there were 28 of the Bay-class vessels, and some of which their names have lived on to this day, uh, carrying out minesweeping operations out in the Gulf currently. 
She was decommissioned from the Royal Navy in uh, 1956, having worked both in Malaya, Hong Kong, uh, Japan, uh, obviously in the Korean Peninsula, uh, but then latterly in the West Indies. She was sailed back to uh, the United Kingdom and laid up in disposal uh, in 1956 in Portsmouth. And then she was sold to the Portuguese Navy after a refit in 1961 and served with the Portuguese Navy until 1970. And what happened after that? Uh, she went into uh, razor blades. Uh, as we recycle ships, uh, would have gone into a breaker's yard uh, and was uh, oh, shame. cut up. Right. Uh, so uh, the uh, the council here uh, have memorabilia from uh, HMS Morecambe Bay. Uh, so they have a model of the ship uh, and they've got a picture of her. Hopefully, if this podcast goes out and we see somebody, somebody sees that the Morecambe Bay is going to be spoken about, he might raise his head above the parapet and say... I served with uh, Morecambe Bay. So, now, how about yourself? Uh, so, tell us a little bit about your own career. Uh, I joined the Navy in 1978 as a 16-year-old boy and uh, as a junior radio operator. I worked my way through my training and became a submariner in late 1979. Joined HMS Spartan, uh, where I was uh, selected for a, a promotion route through to the officer corps finally uh, was promoted to midshipman in 1984 uh, and uh, worked my way through the system, uh, eventually becoming the commanding officer of uh, four submarines and two minor war vessels. Finishing my career uh, at a joint facility in the United States of America before coming back and retiring in 2018. So just uh, 40 years and 23 days uh, of service. And if you asked me to do it all again, I would in a heartbeat uh, take you up on that offer. It was just an outstanding career that allowed me to progress to the level of my abilities and, and there's nothing finer than to be the commanding officer of one of Her Majesty's uh, vessels. I it can was imagine. just fantastic. What was it that first attracted you to that particular career, being a submariner? Uh, as with all these things, uh, a, a troubled home life meant that it was a way of escaping that, uh, so I made it to join my brother. He joined the Navy about 15 months before me. He seemed to be having a great time, so I took the plunge. Uh, and once I arrived at HMS Raleigh in, in Torpoint in Cornwall, I knew it was just the right thing to do. And uh, it's given me opportunities that I would never have had in, in civilian life. I've flown in Jaguar aircraft, in Chinook helicopters. Uh, I've uh, fired a, a test uh, test missile for the Trident uh, system when I uh, uh, re um, reoriginated not reoriginated what's the word I'm looking for uh, when I regenerated HMS Vigilant out of her refit in 2012. So uh, that was a, a very exciting time in in my career. Um, test missile that was. Uh, 27 years old when I fired it and it did exactly what it was meant to do it was just um, a, a great way to regenerate the platform um, so yeah no I've, I've had a ball so what's the biggest challenge being in, in charge of like you said of a, um, a majesty's ship it is working with the team uh, making sure that the team are all aware of what we are trying to achieve carrying them with you rather than uh, making them lead you through fear, just keep them informed, keep them uh, appraised of what you're trying to achieve and, and just watching them grow as they learn their own business and progress through the ranks uh, to achieve their maximum potential. Uh, that's the job of any CEO or manager, uh, I, I, will, uh, I will put that to you and, and it's no different in the Royal Navy. 
you, you are really training somebody to take over from you because nobody is invincible. Um, we can just, uh, somebody, captains come and go, but it's the team ethos uh, that they would have had in the Morecambe Bay while they were working in Korea, aware of what the mission was and how important it was. So once you generate that team ethos, it's remarkable what a, a team of 157 people in Morecambe Bay, 168 people in, in, in a Trident-class submarine, uh, what they can achieve. In 40 years, were there any worrying moments, when you any scary moments? I'm sure there was a, a few. <laughs> there were a few, but I'm pleased to say that I'm able to sit here with you and just tell you that they were scary at the time. Uh, but when you look back on them, uh, the team around me worked incredibly well at the time and we survived uh, all of the things that were thrown at me and, and they're not uh, they're not just mechanical issues or uh, operational difficulties they're difficulties with people and they come to you with stories of, of uh, a mishap that's happened to them um, so when I joined my first submarine in 1979 the first thing we had to do was donate blood for a chap that had had a motorcycle accident on his way back to the submarine and it's things like that that you can't control that you have to work on and, and find a way through that path. Um, always difficult as a commanding officer because they're your people. You are de facto their, their parent and especially in a submarine where you are out of contact. There is no contact with the outside world and uh, so you use your life experiences to be able to keep things on, a, 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 on an even keel. Uh, such that you can bring them all back home to you. So, Because uh, so. I guess that's the thing, is when you're so far underneath the water and you're out of contact, keeping people calm, keeping keeping it professional, I guess that's that's one of the big roles that you must have had. It is, and they get all of the, uh, the news uh, on a daily feed, and therefore they're interested in what my take is on where we're going and why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, and providing I can keep them on side and they understand what, what it is we're trying to do, then uh, it, it is very easy for them to uh, accept the role that, that they're uh, undertaking. So what do you do now? I know you're here regularly at these events and you're doing the tour. What have you done since you, uh, since you left the services? So, believe it or not, my wife and I have been travelling until we could travel no more because of the pandemic. As we've just come out of the pandemic, I have joined the Royal National Lifeboat Institute here in Morecambe. So... Uh, I'm training to be a launch authority for for the RNLI uh, and I qualify in about three weeks time uh, when I complete the, the final workshop. So above the water? So above the water and, and just having that ability to talk to both the Coast Guard, to the guys who operate the, the vessels that we've got, the hovercraft and the inshore lifeboat. Uh, to make sure that it's safe for them to go and, uh, and save lives at sea, which is uh, the mission of the RNLI, as you know. Okay, brilliant. Well, that's a very worthy you know, voluntary organisation. They're doing an amazing job, so I'm sure you'd be great at that, Mark, and uh, I'm sure you're looking forward to doing that and uh, yeah, you know, getting back out there. They're a great bunch of people to work with. Uh, they're all like-minded. They're all from different walks of life, but they all have that one mission aim to, to watch them operate with uh, the two different crafts that we have. Uh, in a very professional manner when the when the shout goes out uh, they're not found wanting which is just a marvellous organisation to be part of Thank you very much for, for chatting to us it's been fascinating finding out about HMS Morecambe Bay in your own career and uh, best of luck with the talk on the, uh, the 25th of June Thank you very much Thank you very much Thank you for listening to The Veteran's Story You can subscribe to the podcasts and visit the Beyond Radio podcast page at www.beyondradio.co.uk 
forward slash podcasts to hear further veteran stories as they are released. For information on how the First Light Trust is helping local veterans, visit www.firstlighttrust.co.uk. Beyond Radio.